Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. When we invented surveillance, Al Mayers and I invented it years ago, this is what we wanted. On set this morning, Richard Haas, the Council on Foreign Relations, and now joining us, the aerospace engineer from a school in New Jersey, now associated for a few years with Harvard, Michael Porter, uh, joins us. And, and Michael, I can only say your 1998 book on competition changed how America thinks. I mean, it's that simple. Our, our barrier to entry this week, Professor Porter, has been the traffic in New York City. <laughs> I experienced it. Myself, you had a barrier entry there. Um, I am dismayed by your update on our competition. It goes into what Ambassador Haas has talked about with our disarray. And you go right to the heart of it, an ineffective national discourse. What do you mean by that? Well, Tom, I, I think uh, the... Uh it, this is not new. We've, we've actually had versions of this for several uh, presidential elections going forward. But uh, we have an economy that is uh, peaked uh, 20 years ago uh, and has been in uh, very much uh, a poor performing mode. We know what to do to fix our economy. We have a very clear idea. There's universally almost consensus among all the thoughtful people that study this area. We've got to change our corporate tax code. We've got to put substantial resources in infrastructure. We've got to clean up the regulatory morass. Uh, we've, we've, there, we, there's, there's things we know we have to address. But our political system is not solving any of those problems. We've made virtually no progress on anything in at least two decades. And uh, the country then is just uh, the, the, is just sliding uh, forward in a very negative Do way. Do we await crisis to get to that? catalyst shift the political process? I, I don't think the crisis is what's going to do it anymore. The, the, the system is structured this way. It, it's structured to divide us. Uh, the parties make really part of policy proposals don't make sense. They're not implementable. They're not actionable. It, it's all theater. And uh, it's not about coming together, taking in, into account legitimate points of view, and then getting things done, coming up with a compromised corporate tax plan, coming up with a compromised infrastructure plan, dealing with high-skill immigration in a way that uh, we all know we need to do. Ambassador, you've seen this before. I mean, Mr. Jerry's house is in Salem, Massachusetts. Is it gerrymandering? Is it the corruption of money that has brought us to Professor Porter's frustration? It's all sorts of things. It's the way we fund our politics. It's the fact that we no longer have broadcasting. We have narrow casting. Individual politicians no longer are dependent on parties, which used to be a compromising and mediating mechanism. In some ways, we actually have the disintermediation of American politics. Each political figure now is his own mini party, and there's scant uh, incentive for people to compromise. Indeed, if you do compromise, you're more likely to get hammered by special interests. You're more likely to face a primary challenge. And what's you know, everyone's focused on the president 
presidential election. To me, and Professor Porter, I think, hits her exactly right, we're likely to wake up, regardless of who wins, with a Washington that hasn't fundamentally changed. It's still divided government, and it might just be as difficult as ever to get anything done. But, Michael Porter, if I wasn't actually, if I didn't know what we were talking about, and I was just listening to you, you could be talking very well about Europe. You could be talking about any Western economy. Is it something bigger that, that actually we're losing competitiveness because we're still thinking with things that we learned 40, 50 years ago, and the world has moved on? We're, we're not China. Well, I, th I think that's, that's part of it for sure. Uh, I mean, the U.S., for example, our tax policy is a tax policy that might have made sense in a pre-global world, but it doesn't make any sense today, and we haven't modernized it. But I, I Will think, Apple fix that? Uh, well, Apple is, is, is a bit of a trigger. It depends on how we fix it. If you listen to some of our uh, political leaders, they say, we're going to stop inversions. Like, companies are inverting because they just feel like it to be evil. And actually, companies are inverting because America has the highest statutory corporate tax rate in the world. We're the only economy that has a sort of double taxation system on international income. Companies are doing that because otherwise they, they, they right. can't compete. And w instead of fixing the problems that allow them to compete, uh, we simply have this theater right. uh, with one side blaming the other. I don't know if you remember this, Francine. Michael Porter stopped Davos five years ago. You're creating shared value, your idea of a new capitalism. What happened? Did you go down in flames on that idea? No, Tom, I think that's actually happening in the business community. You should. Uh, I'm very I'd proud. agree with that. I, I'm very proud. We have now, Fortune Magazine has a new list. It's called the Companies Changing the World list. Yeah, but Francine, and, and I did. That's happening. I, I did not See, hear I, Mr. Trump or Secretary Clinton talk about business within the context of creating shared value. Right, no. but the problem with shared value is that you look at companies like Nestle, Unilever, you're sure they're doing that, but there's still short termism. And, and, and you can't argue against that, right? You, when you look at the amount of cash that big companies are sitting on and the amount of dividends that they're paying back, you can't tell me this is inclusive capitalism, even for, for the big companies. Well, I, I you know, I, I think you're right. We, another, you know, if you look at how our economy is doing, investment is low. Mm. Companies are not investing. Most of what they're investing is actually to buy back stock. Uh, why? Because they don't see uh, growth opportunities in the economy. They don't see any structural reasons why we're going to get out of very, very slow growth. Uh, do you know the n proportion of Americans actually working today that are of working age? We're back into the 80s and the 70s. We mm -hmm. have uh, we we have uh, productivity growth is de slowly declining in our economy. All the so what are you going to do about productivity? What do you do about the dynamics of capital investment, labor, and total factor productivity? Again, I, Tom, about uh, three years ago, we at HBS put out what we call our eight-point plan. It's very simple. Reduce right. the corporate tax rate, invest in infrastructure, bring down the regulatory burden, open up international trade. We are the ones who are getting hurt by the international Ambassador trade Ambassador Haas, you've got a one-point plan. What's the Haas one-point plan well, single to thing, go with Professor Porter's eight-point plan? Two things. One is TPP. If you want to do anything over the next six months, both substantively on trade and openness, and to show that America can work politically, it would be passage of TPP over the longer run, education and training. We have got to get our human capital up to the point where it's it, it can compete globally. Right, but the problem, uh, Ambassador Haas, is that it, it takes two to tango. So you can have an open America if the rest of the world is closed, then it, it won't advance the U.S. at all. This is, again, this is a global, it feels like a global Yeah, but problem. TPP, quite honestly, 
the United States is already relatively open. What it does is help the United States. It brings others to the much closer to the point where we're, we where we already are. This is this to me ought to be a no-brainer. And where we need transitional assistance for those workers who are adversely affected, we should provide it to them. This should be a no-brainer, but it isn't. What are the underlying causes of what's going on? I, I, my own view is is our political leaders are just confusing the hell out of our people. They're somehow saying that we somehow this is going to hurt us when, as the ambassador said, we're already open. This can only help us. It's going to allow us to get access to markets that have been closed. Uh, why wouldn't we do this? Uh, instead of fixing the corporate tax system, which we all know we have to fix, everybody thoughtful knows you need to have to fix, the uh, political leaders say, oh, this corporate tax system, the companies are, are abusing the tax system. They're not playing fair. They're cheating by not playing taxes. Uh, it's, it, we, we've created a society where we can't make rational choices right. about and how to go ahead. And this is the politicians' fault. It's not that they're, tr- they're trying to, to I, I guess, move either more right-wing or left-wing because this is what the citizen wants. And they have politicians such as Marine Le Pen, uh, Donald Trump, yeah. a whole loads of them that, yeah. that are, are different yeah. and that are popular. Yeah, that's true. And, and the other thing I would tell you is no ideological position is ever good economic mm-hmm. policy. Small government isn't a good economic policy. Big government isn't an economic policy. It's somewhere in between. It's some, it's a synthesis of ideas. Yeah, it's also the, it's the law of intensity. Those who feel that they are hurt by trade are far more active in the political right. marketplace okay. than the masses who benefit from trade. Do you advocate a new industrial policy for America? That's a delicate issue. Well, we don't use the world industrial policy because I've, I've been in, in this space long enough to know that's probably not the right word. Yeah. <laughs> we advocate a, a new economic strategy for America. Our economic strategy has been let the Fed bring down interest rates and we'll hope that something good happens. Mm-hmm. The Fed can't change this. We have a structural problem. Mm-hmm. We're not fixing our weaknesses. Uh, we are lagging behind. Uh, the incomes of the average American are, are, are not moving with uh, very, very few exceptions. We're not fixing the things we know we've allowed to go wrong in America. And until we do, we're going we're gonna to be in a trading range in the economy, and it's going to be slow. Uh, Ambassador Haas, your book coming out in January on the disarray. I believe there will be a disarray in our debate on Monday on foreign policy. What should we expect? Well, I mean, you've got two very different candidates when it comes to foreign policy. Hillary Clinton is much more of a traditional continuity uh, representative. Donald Trump, we don't exactly know what we'd get from a Donald Trump presidency, but he has put on the table and questioned some of the fundamentals of not just post-Cold War, but post-World War II American foreign policy, including our alliance relationships, our belief in, in free trade, and American leadership and activism in the world. What is the one thing that, that if you were in charge, right, and, and if you were president, um, what is the one foreign policy that you would actually start implementing the, the week after you get elected? It's reported. Well, uh, here's the foreign policy expert. Uh, I, I would be thinking more about the economic policies that will, uh, I think, be good for the world and good for America. And again, I would start with this TPP and continuing the trade opening process, which has been stalled. America was the leader in opening the, tr- the trade, and uh, and then we we sort we sort of shut that down. And other countries mm-hmm. took over. Other countries have been very aggressive in in, in signing agreements and doing deals and opening markets. So that would be that. Would 
would that would right. be one thing. We do need to again restructure the international uh, business taxation system. Uh, right now, we're tangled up in a very uh, right. complicated system where everybody's having to do all should, kinds of clever things. Ambassador, should we fear bilateral negotiations? Do they hearken back to the 30s, or do we just this is where we are now? You know, the the, the grandeur of WTO is not going to return. Well, WTO is not going to return. Uh, we're not going to have a global answer on trade, but something like TPP and conceivably one day maybe mm. a transatlantic deal are fine uh, if, if you can get it. And again, what would be so good about passing TPP is not simply the economic benefit, which would be modest. We just, the strategic message it would say about that America can operate politically and that our alliance relations actually matter. It has been wonderful to have both of you here. The only reason I feel good is to be here, Ambassador Haas, with Michael Porter and the Red Sox in first place uh, is a very I was going to say thank you and how good it was to be here this morning, and now you've wrecked it. This has been wonderful. Richard Haas, thank you so much, Michael Porter. Wonderful you, to see you. We'll see you again. And Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Michael Mayo with us. And, of course, we will talk the drama of Wells Fargo and Mr. Stumpf in Washington. But, Michael Mayo, you've been <laughs> so good with us on a longer view and a longer perspective. With Deutsche Bank, you don't cover Deutsche Bank directly, do you? I do not. Can you comment on, as I said earlier today on television, the overcome by events? I get the feeling there's a rhetoric, there's a dialogue, and I don't need the ratio minutia from you, but there's a belief and a hope on the part of their board, their management, Mr. Cryan and all, and then that goes topsy-turvy at some point. Do you feel that about Deutsche Bank from a distance? Well, I think you're in an environment where regulators feel pressure from politicians to crack down on banks, whether it's in the United States or Europe. So if you don't have your act together, if you haven't straightened up your regulatory problems, if you haven't settled your legal problems, the pressure just gets greater and greater. And you're seeing that during this presidential election. I mean, banking is still part of the debate. I mean, we'll probably hear some of that in a few days during the first presidential debate. So whether it's a bank in Europe or a bank mm -hmm. in the United States, uh, you better keep your nose clean. You better clean up your problems. Otherwise, the pressure just is relentless. Do you perceive, again, across the Atlantic, that Europe has the same regulatory scrutiny of the day-to-day -day books of a bank as we do in the United States, where X number of government officials walk in to name the bank and they can set up shop at any time? I think the steps that regulators in the United States uh, are ahead of those in Europe. And the most concrete example is the amount of capital, common equity, that the U.S. banks raised after the financial crisis compared mm -hmm. to that of the European banks, which still are behind on their overall uh, leverage, which hasn't come down as much as for, for U.S. banks. And so yeah. I believe in hardwiring the improvements in the banking industry. So, yes, there are... You know, thousands and thousands of people at banks like J.P. Morgan that are, 
you know, in charge of their internal yeah. compliance. And I just think that's a step ahead of the European competitors. Yeah. Uh, Michael, Mayo, I saw uh, uh, Jamie Dimon yesterday at the Economic Club of New York. He looked tanned and rested. Mike McKee, uh, Jamie Dimon has to be remembered to Michael Mayo. You know? <laughs> I, I yeah. saw that yesterday. Yeah, you're stirring up trouble here. You get mad at me for stirring up trouble. I would never do that. Uh, the Europeans, Michael, said uh, they don't think their banks uh, can withstand the higher capital requirements that are coming and uh, shouldn't have to, uh, suggesting that we're going to have a fight over the Basel requirements. Uh, do you think that you know we end up here in the United States with weaker capital requirements if uh, the Europeans take the fight to the regulators? Absolutely not. I mean, what's done has been done in the United States. The question is, will it go one step even further for the U.S. banks? And you have what's known as the Federal Reserve stress test. And once a year, banks have their balance sheets stressed for a scenario that's tougher, tougher than it was for the global financial crisis. And only after that very severe stress test are banks allowed to return capital through dividends and, and buying back their own stock. So it's already pretty significant for the U.S. bank. Now, it might become a little bit tougher with the Fed stress test, um, but this is just getting that much further ahead of the European bank. So, no, there won't be any dilution of the, the current capital requirements of the U.S. banks. Where do you put uh, the capital requirements of U.S. banks? Are they at an adequate level now? There, we're still waiting for the surcharges to come in. Well, before the financial crisis, as you guys know, we published 10,000 pages of cautionary research about the banking industry. One reason, because leverage before the financial crisis was the highest it ever was in 25 years. Now, after the financial crisis, uh, capital and bank balance sheets are the stronger strong as they've been in, in decades. In fact, if you just look at a basic metric like equity to assets, it's the highest it's been in 80 years. Um, so I think banks now are mm -hmm. sufficiently capitalized. I think you know, there's always a debate how much capital is enough. And I was a regulator at the Federal Reserve in the late 1980s, and the right amount of capital to regulators <clears throat> is always more, more, more. But I think we're at that point where it seems to be about the right level. Right. Uh, let us turn to Mr. Stumpf right now. Michael Mayo, John Stumpf, if you read his Wikipedia, folks, and I've had the honor of uh, interviewing Mr. Stumpf at length for Bloomberg events. Uh, boy, did he start out basic. One of 11 kids, his father, a dairy farmer. Um, he started out actually repos repossessing cars was his first job. This guy's going to go to Washington. There's going to be a little bit of scrutiny. What is John Stumpf's future, Michael Mayo? Well, I'm going to correct you, Tom Keene. I would not say a little bit of scrutiny. I would say <laughs> he is in the hot seat, um, and he has a lot of uh, questions to answer. And I read the testimony. It's only five pages, and I'm telling you, that won't do it. I mean, this is not even an appetizer for uh, a meal. I mean, I think Elizabeth Warren and gang, they're looking for at least some red meat here. And questions that are not answered in his testimony, you know, why did it take so long to stop the problems? Where were the checks and balances, including from the board of directors? And what, what are the repercussions for top management? So I still think it's John Stump, CEO of Wells Fargo's uh, you know, job to lose. So I still think he stays in the position, but I'll tell you, the uh, the handling of this uh, cross-sell uh, fiasco uh, has not been good, both because the company did not intervene quickly enough, 
and also for his, the handling in the past week or so. So um, I think he stays in the job, but I also think there needs to be clawbacks of pay of the head of the community banking division at Wells Fargo and possibly for the CEO, too. In fact, I read the proxy, Wells Fargo's proxy. It says if there is significant reputational harm, that's grounds for clawback. So if it doesn't apply now, when would it apply? So hold yeah. management accountable. Yeah. By the way, and I think shareholders need to hold well, Wells that, Fargo management accountable. As a, you don't always need regulators. Let's have shareholders step in and fill the void. And you guys know that, I, that we've been attending annual meetings trying to hold the boards of directors more accountable. By the way, maybe they should have some people from the board of directors at Wells Fargo testify. You know, they could read the papers and see what was going on in the last few years. What questions were they uh, asking? Well, that's where I wanted to go with this, because members of Congress like to show off at these hearings and, and yell at people, and they will, certainly with Mr. Stumpf. But uh, for his future, the question is, what do shareholders think? What are you hearing about uh, the shareholder reaction to this whole thing? Do they isolate uh, this from Mr. Stumpf, or does it go into the CEO's office? Shareholders of Wells Fargo want to see management held accountable. There is concern about the impact of this uh, cross-sell fiasco on the bank's culture. Uh, so at the same time, I'm not getting calls, I'm not getting emails saying, get rid of the CEO. So I think there's a middle ground here of holding management accountable for the bad actions of Wells Fargo for the last five years, right. 5,300 employees, that doesn't happen in a vacuum. Now, having said that, Wells Fargo, the top of the house, did not want this to happen. That's the big difference from the financial crisis. The financial crisis was driven by faulty incentives at the top of banks. There were no incentives at the top of Wells Fargo to have unauthorized accounts opened up. We estimate that Wells Fargo lost $5 million as a result of these 2 million unauthorized accounts being opened. The more that this took place, the more right. Wells, Wells Fargo <clears throat> lost. So it's not intent. It's like they, they didn't know at first what okay. was happening. When they, when they found out, they didn't act well, quickly enough. Michael Mayo with the CLSA. We talk banking. We're going to get back to Wells Fargo. Michael, Todd Anthony Combs, C-O-M-B-S. Todd Anthony Combs is a hedge fund guy who many people, including Warren Buffet, have said one day he could, like, replace Warren Buffet. I believe there's an idea that he will join the J.P. Morgan board, which just in itself a hedge fund guy in the J.P. Morgan board. I'm really not sure about that. But what do you think about the idea of a Buffett guy with Buffett's exposure to Wells Fargo, Amex, and all that, about a Buffett guy being on the J.P. Morgan board. Is, is that a bit odd? I, I like the idea of having somebody with a wealth of financial experience on the board of a large bank. Uh, as you know, I've had issues with some other banks, especially Comerica, uh, where we think there's a risk that the shareholders vote the CEO out after next year's annual meeting. Um, Part of the concern is the lack of strength of that board. We've had that concern with other boards, Citigroup, uh, before the financial crisis. Bank of America, we had that concern. So I think, you know, J.P. Morgan is stepping back and saying, who would be value added to add to the board? And we say, let's get somebody else that really understands finance, and that could be yeah. a nice balance to the board. So I, I, I like it. I mean, it's interesting to me, Michael McKee, Florida State University, finance, multinational business operations. Todd Combs, it, it's almost like he's out of big short. I mean, I don't want to, you know, movie him. 
But but Michael McKee, it is a different choice for J.P. Morgan. Well, it is, and then kind of the question, uh, Mike. I will do a quick follow up here. Is just to, you know, why does Warren Buffett care what happens to one of his competitors, Michael? Oh, I'm sorry, oh. I, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't see a whole lot of reason why he would care about. <laughs> I mean, he's a big think, investor think... in Wells and Amex and people who compete <laughs> with JPM. So, you know, does does he have a dog in this fight? Well, I, I think. Look, you have someone who thinks like Warren Buffett on your board. Uh, maybe someone who one day replaces Warren Buffett. That doesn't seem like a bad guy to have on your board of directors. Mm-hmm. A long-term thinker, someone who's really looking at value. You know, managing for economics, not politics. Those are good traits on a board of directors. Why not? Yeah. If you, Jake Morgan can get them. Yeah. You know, more power to it. Michael, Michael McKee, pick it up here. John Tucker, did you just see that? That was that surveillance <laughs> pregnant silence yeah. because we have Michael Mayo and Michael McKee, and I did not handle that correctly. Silence on radio. That's your specialty. Yeah, no. It's a two-minute. Tom it's a, fumbles it's in a the backfield. It's a two-minute minor. It's uh, a double minor with Mike Mayo. Michael McKee. Go back to uh, Wells Fargo for a second. They were the different bank. They were the ones who kept their noses clean, stuck to their knitting, did uh, financial intermediation rather than make their money in trading, uh, and then they get into trouble like this. Does this leave the banking industry more vulnerable in the long run uh, to? more congressional meddling, more legislation. Wow. When I saw what took place with Wells Fargo, uh, you know, Wells Fargo, one of the best banks for the last couple decades, and then you see even employees at Wells Fargo, you know, will cheat, 5,300 employees. So the reaction from regulators is, you know, let's do more. My point is, let's have shareholders do more. Uh, Nature abhors a vacuum. Washington, D.C. loves one. So to the extent that shareholders don't step in and hold banks accountable, then it does give incentive for Washington, D.C. to regulate more. So that's going to be in view today uh, at the Senate Banking Committee as they grill the CEO of Wells Fargo. It's not just Wells Fargo um, positions at stake here. It's the, in the banking industry. So it, it waits to be seen. Now, having said that, you know, I think the extent of the problems at Wells Fargo will be unique. You're always going to have defect rates, and that's something we can debate and analyze. What's an acceptable defect rate in the banking industry? It will never be 0%, way too high at Wells Fargo, no question, but I have to imagine that the defect rate, so to speak, opening yeah. unauthorized accounts, was higher at Wells Fargo than, than anybody, any of the other big banks. Mike, before you dash, buy, hold, sell on Wells Fargo. What price is an attractive price to acquire shares of Wells Fargo? You're, you need a long-term perspective for Wells Fargo. We stuck with our rating. We upgraded at $28 several years ago. We've had a nice ride. It's going to take some time to work through it. But yesterday, uh, I went next to the uh, Bloomberg Global Headquarters at the Wells Fargo branch at 58th and 3rd Avenue, and I talked to customers as they left, and I said, are you happy with the Wells being a Wells Fargo customer? And they said, yes. I go, what about this crisis? And their responses were, well, it's convenient. I've been here too long. I wasn't victimized. I like the product offerings. They're not leaving. They've grown deposits by one half this decade. So, you know, it's a glass 98 well, or 99% full or 1% empty. I think this this blows over with some pain. And so long as they hold Wells Fargo management accountable, it okay. must take place. Michael Mayo on the street research on Wells Fargo. This is Bloomberg.
inflation is what it's all about for the Federal Reserve. They seem to have the jobs thing kind of covered. Is inflation enough of a danger to convince enough members of the Fed to surprise markets and raise interest rates tomorrow? David Stockton is with the Peterson Institute. He is a, a senior fellow there, but uh, more importantly, he is a former uh, monetary policy director at the Federal Reserve Board. And we welcome him to the show now to ask that question. Um, where do you think they come down on the need to be preemptive at this point? It, it, they have enough space to kind of let things go for a while? Yes, they're definitely not in a preemptive mood at this point, I, I think. Uh, it's pretty clear that uh, if they were actually acting uh, aggressively ahead of any overshoot and any overheating on the economy, they probably would have already raised rates. But I think they're really more concerned about the asymmetric risks, and that is raising rates too soon, cutting off a recovery, not getting inflation back to target. So I think really the committee, certainly the center of the committee, uh, and Yellen in particular, are more in the patient camp than the ready-to-go camp. Do we see a single a 25 basis point move as cutting off the recovery, or is is it the path and the final you know, ending point that really matter? Yeah, so it's not so much the timing of whether it's September or December. It really is, as you note. Uh, it's the trajectory and the, the pace at which they, yeah. they remove the accommodation. And I think at this point they're voting with their, not so much with their mouths, but with their actions for a rather gradual path here. David, you've just hit what I mentioned this at dinner last night, actually, folks. To me, David... One of the great mysteries of the parlor game and the discussion is all the smart people, all the experts talk about a vector, a path, a trajectory, and a huge body. The public says, can't they just go one and done? Explain why they can't do that. Well, at this point, I mean, uh, the reason they can't do that is that they still are in an accommodative position, and we still are generating job growth that's sort of above the levels that would be consistent with a stable unemployment rate. You know, we've been generating job growth in the, you know, 150 to 200,000 uh, per month range when we only need about 80 to 100. Um, so I don't think the one and done is going to get it, uh, get you back in essence to a level of interest rates that would be consistent with a stable unemployment rate and inflation running at their 2% target. They're still accommodative in that sense. The, the real issue is sort of how they, how quickly, where do they want to place the risk going forward? Do they want to place the risk more at the potential for undershooting their target or overshooting their target? And while they haven't actually admitted this publicly, it seems to me as if they're certainly setting policy in a way that suggests they want to take the risk that they're willing to overheat and uh, overshoot the target by a modest amount rather than uh, undershoot it at this point. What is the... the uh well, let me ask you this way. In, fr from your point of view, uh, what is the danger of inflation? Has there been a, a sort of secular change here? We have unemployment at what most of them say is basically full employment. We're not seeing inflation. So um, I think there's some significant uncertainties about, especially about how the Great Recession and our, our relatively slow recovery have uh, affected the labor market, and in particular, just how much room is there to grow further and push the unemployment rate down without generating inflation. I think if you'd asked most economists a few years ago, 
and told them we'd be sitting here at uh, sub-5% unemployment, they probably would have expected more upward pressure on inflation. Now, there's two things going on. One is inflation looks like it's become less sensitive to the unemployment rate or to the degree of slack in the economy than had previously been the case uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And the other thing is, with labor force participation having declined as much as it has, uh, with part-time uh, employment uh, still relatively elevated, um, there's questions about just how much room there is to grow the economy. And I think uh, clearly there's a split on the committee. Some who have said, look, we're pretty close to full employment. Uh, inflation uh, is likely to head back to 2% relatively promptly. And others think counseling more patience and more experimentation to sort of push the envelope to see just how much uh, the economy can grow at this point. David, thank you so much. David Stockton with us, the Peterson Institute. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.